John chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing, still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. I'm Pastor Tim Hauseler. Welcome uh, to worship if we haven't met. And if you're visiting, uh, please come say hi to me after the service. I'd love to meet you. As Pastor Mark mentioned earlier uh, this morning, uh, we're finishing up a sermon series that we've been doing the last five weekends together called Made Perfect in Weakness. Uh, today we're in part five, When I Feel Ashamed. People are not the uh, only ones who feel ashamed. Take a look at the screen. Who did this mess? <laughs> Who did this? Cody, did you make this mess? Murphy, did you make this mess? Maggie, did you make this mess? Somebody made it. Who made it? Who made this mess? Anyone want to guess who the guilty party was? How about you? You feel that way sometimes? Feel ashamed? Feel guilty? Know you've done something wrong? Oftentimes, uh, we carry the weight of those things, our shame and our guilt, and we carry it around with us. It affects us. It weighs us down as we go through life. It becomes a burden on us mentally. Sometimes even physically it starts to take its toll on us. And certainly spiritually. We carry our shame and guilt around and it's heavy. And, and we, we wonder, how, how am I going to get through the next day? And, and, and how am I going to proceed knowing what's in here? Knowing what I'm ashamed of? Knowing what's in my past, knowing what I did just yesterday, knowing the things that I carry around, the burdens of shame and guilt. What's in your backpack? 
And what effect is it having on you? Jesus meets a woman shamed publicly in John chapter 8. He has her brought to him as he's teaching in the temple. But before we get to that and we revisit the verses we just heard read, I want to set the table with you by turning in Matthew's gospel to chapter 7. You want to join me there if you have a Bible with you? Because Jesus will be teaching on this very subject and then be acting it out in John. I always find it amazing and wonderful how Jesus walks his talk. When he says something in Scripture, he lives it out. And it's a powerful thing to witness. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank or the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus teaching on judging others. And I don't know about you, but when I hear these words, I feel convicted. This is something I wrestle with. How about you? How quick are we to judge other people? How quick are we to categorize them? How quick are we to pass judgment on someone else? And sometimes it's harmless. Sometimes it's not. How many of us use social media as a battery ram or a club to beat people over the head with our judgment? How often do we uh, read about someone we know writing something on social media that's judging someone else? We as people of faith can stop that. We cannot control what someone else puts in social media, but we can certainly guard our own hearts and our own postings to be positive, to be encouraging. As Martin Luther said, to put our neighbor's actions in words, to, to explain them in the kindest way possible. That's what people of faith do. Jesus says, don't judge others or, or you will be judged. The way you judge others, that's going to be the measuring stick for your judgment. Those are strong words. He says, you hypocrites, why do you, why do you try to point out that little speck in your neighbor's eye when you've got a log in your own eye? Whenever I trip over someone judging someone else, a lot of the time it's in social media, I think of those words. I think, who, who gives that person the right to judge that other person that way? They've got a log somewhere in their own eye. They're trying to point out the speck in that other person. Jesus' words are strong and true, and I think we should really pay attention to them. Not just in social media, but in our lives, in the school lunchroom, on the college campus, wherever we're at at work. Let's be careful about how quick we are to judge other people. We use an entirely different measuring stick when it comes to judging others. When I'm driving down 59 and I'm going just a few miles an hour over the speed limit, 
and some crazy driver goes by at like 20 miles an hour over the speed limit, my first thought is, oh, I hope a police officer gets that guy. You ever think that? Oh, that's, they're, they're going 70 down 59. They're going to hurt someone. They're gonna, what's going on? Man, where's, whoa, there's a police Get that guy, right? Oh, but when I'm late for something and I'm going fast, I apply an entirely different judgment rule for me, don't I? It's with these words of teaching on judging others that we encounter the story in John chapter 8. Now, you want to turn there with me? John chapter 8, let's see what happens. In verse 2, we pick it up. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. He was literally holding court. He was a teacher, many thought a rabbi, and when he sat down to teach, a crowd would gather because they believed whatever he said was super important and it had to be coming from God. So picture that scene now, the temple courts, not in the temple building itself in Jerusalem, but in the courts, the public courts where people would gather. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Complete shame. Picture that. Complete shame. They bring her before Jesus. They made her stand before the group, verse 4, and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, verse 5, and the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Let's pause for a second. I have an important question to ask you. Are there any Trekkies here in the room? Live long and prosper. Star Trek, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Three seasons in the late 60s, and NBC said, this will never make it. Ten billion dollars later, I think the franchise has done okay, don't you? Captain Kirk, Spock, and the rest boldly traveling through space in the 23rd century. I'm now going to do an obscure Star Trek reference for you. And if you have no idea what Star Trek is about, just hang on. In the movie, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, where Mr. Rourke is Khan from Fantasy Island, okay? And Kirstie Alley is playing a young cadet in the opening scene of Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. This is 1982. And the opening scene is she is doing this training exercise for the Starfleet cadets, the good guys and gals, that you can't beat. It's designed for you not to win. It's called the Kobayashi Maru, the name of the civilian ship that has entered Klingon neutral zone territory in the simulation. And it's a no-win situation because the cadet in charge of the, the, the ship like the Enterprise is, on, is, is there uh, leading everyone and trying to decide what to do. Here's the dilemma. You can't win because if the cadet decides to go into the neutral zone to rescue this ship, the Kobayashi Maru of civilians, it will start 
an intergalactic war and everyone will perish in the simulation. If they choose not to go in and save them, the people on this ship will certainly come to their own death. You can't win. So why did they have it? Well, it was a training to test the character of the cadet. So there's Kirstie Alley in the opening scene of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and you see how it plays out and it doesn't go well, and she can't win. There's only one cadet we learn later in the film who beat this exercise. Anyone want to guess who it was? James T. Kirk. Yes, William Shatner. Denny Crane. That guy. And what does he say when they ask him, how did you beat it? He says, I don't believe in the no-win scenario. She says, did you cheat? He said, no. The day before the simulation, I rewrote the program. I rewrote the simulation so we could go into the neutral zone and rescue the people on the ship. She said, so you cheated? He said, no. I was given an award for creative thinking. I don't believe in the no-win scenario. Chris Pine would then later in a movie in 2009, as they reprise all the characters as they should be, with all due respect to the next generation, and they show how he beats the system, how he wins uh, the simulation, and it's an interesting scene. Here ends the obscure Star Trek reference for the day. Thank you. Thank you very much. But regardless if you're a Trekkie or not, here's the point. The cadets are presented with a no-win situation. But Kirk rewrote the program. He altered the simulation. The religious leaders bring this woman before Jesus. They present Jesus with a no-win situation. She was caught in adultery and they say, the law of Moses, Jesus says, she should be stoned. What do you say? If he says, go ahead, then he's in conflict with the Roman authorities who occupy their land because only the Romans can carry out this execution. The Israelites in that occupied land have no authority to do that, but even more important, if he says, go ahead, he's contradicting his own teaching on grace and forgiveness and God's unconditional love. So he can't, that's a no-win to say, go ahead. If he says, you can't, if he says, don't, then what is he doing as a rabbi of the faith? He's saying, don't carry out the law of Moses in front of everyone in the temple courts. It's a no-win situation. What does he do? Let's go back to the text. Does he answer right away? No. We learn in 6 they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Jesus wrote with his finger in the dirt. So picture that. Here's this woman brought before him in the temple courts. She's caught in a sin. The law says this is the penalty. Jesus, what do you say? And he gets down and he starts writing with his finger in the dirt. Interesting. What's he writing? Well, scholarship has kicked this around for 2,000 years. And they've come up with three or four things that he may have been doing there. The first one is he's buying time. Okay? I have two kids. And I won't tell you which one does this. 
But when we ask this child of ours a tough question, their response is what? They heard me. Right? Parents, amen? Anyone? Is it just my kid? We ask a tough question, and the quick response is what? Oh, you heard me, but what are they doing? They're buying time. The wheels are turning. The wheels are turning, right? Coming up with a good response for dad, right? Thinking it through. Jesus was buying time. He heard him, but he's buying time. He's talking to God. He's praying it out with God. He's, he's thinking it through. He's just buying a little time. That's one uh, thing scholarship believes he might have been doing. What, what else might he have been doing? He's making the religious leaders repeat their charges, their hypocritical charges. They're bringing this woman caught in sin, but Jesus says, hey, why don't you say it one more time, because if I don't respond, you'll probably bring it up again, which they did, to show their hypocrisy, because Jesus knew their hearts. He knew they were wrestling with their own sins in their own life, even though publicly they tried to portray something different. Third option. He was ignoring them. He's like, I heard you. I'm not going to answer that. I'm not going to answer that. But we know that that's not what he did. There's a fourth thing that's very intriguing. I find it very intriguing. He was writing the specific sins of the accusers in the dirt. The ones who brought the woman to Jesus. And he, be, he gets down on the dirt and starts writing out the sins of each of them. It's almost like he doesn't say anything, but he goes, remember that? Remember that one? And he's writing in the dirt the sins of the accusers. Woo! Pretty interesting. What transpires next? Well, they kept on questioning him. Verse 7, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. I don't know about you, but if the next slide on the screen, and I'm telling you right now, it is not going to be, but if the next slide on the screen where Tim Householder's Worst 10 things he's ever said, thought, or done in his life. And they were listed there for you in a top 10. I would not want to be standing here right now. I would be ashamed of that list. What about you? Jesus writing them down. One by one in the dirt. What happens? At this, verse 9, those who heard began to go away one at a time, and the older ones first, which lend itself kind of to the last one up there, doesn't it? The older ones have a longer list, more to be ashamed about. They drop their stone. The, guy, the older guy goes, ooh, drops the stone and goes away. The older ones leave first. Their list is longer. They're, what they're carrying around in their bag is heavier. Until only Jesus was left. And the woman still standing there. So when I feel ashamed, like this woman did in this text, where is Jesus? Well, the first thing we can think about when I feel ashamed is Jesus meets us right where we're at. 
Jesus meets us right where we are at, in our shame, in our guilt, in our sin. He doesn't turn away. He doesn't walk away. He stays in the moment with the one who's wrestling with shame. And he meets them right where they are at. That's what he did with Matthew the tax collector. That's what he did with Zacchaeus. That's what he did with the woman at the well. And the list goes on and on in Scripture. Whenever Jesus encountered someone broken, he met them right where they are at. May it never be any different here at Alleluia. As a community of faith, to name and claim our brokenness together. To be authentic with one another. To say, I have things I'm wrestling with in my life, and I know you do too. To come into our connect groups, to come into our small groups and our youth and our children's ministries, to come into those places where we can be real with one another and allow Jesus to meet us right where we are at, not putting on any airs, not pretending to be holier-than-thou people, not pretending to be ultra-righteous people and everyone else is not, but to be in a community of faith where Jesus meets us right where we are at, in our own shame, in our own brokenness. The next thing he does after doing that is he offers forgiveness. Go to the text. Jesus straightened up in verse 10 and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus offers forgiveness to the woman, not condemnation. He offers grace, not a lecture. He says, I don't condemn you either. Complete forgiveness. The third thing Jesus does is he calls us to a changed behavior. Look how the text ends. After he says, neither do I condemn you, he says, now and leave your life of sin. Repentance literally means to turn around. To do a 180, to go the other way. We're leading a life of sin. We're going in this direction. Jesus meets us in the moment. He offers us forgiveness and he says, now go and leave your life of sin. Leave that. Go that way instead. And we're changed. And that which enslaves us is no more. One of my favorite stories is the two little kids who visit Grandma and Grandpa's farm every summer for a month and they, they're given chores by Grandma and Grandpa and they have to do their chores and they live the farm life and it's a fun experience just to be with their grandparents. And Grandma has a pet duck and, and um, Tommy gets a slingshot as a gift from Grandpa and he's, he can't hit a thing. He can't hit a thing with that thing. He tries so hard to hit things with a slingshot. Not a chance. Not a he hasn't hit a thing in a hundred tries. And on a whim, he points it at Grandma's pet duck. You know where this is going, don't you? Boom. Boom. Duck. Over. Tommy buries the duck behind the shed. They're at dinner. Grandma says, Carol, you going to help with dishes? She says, oh, I talked to Tommy. Tommy wants to help you do my chore tonight. And she leans over and whispers to Tommy, Remember the duck. 
And Tommy goes, yeah, I'll do the dishes. Next day, same thing. Oh, Tommy wants to do the dishes again tonight. Oh, really? Is that true, Tommy? Remember the duck. Yeah, I want to do it. This goes on for a week. He can't stand it anymore. He's doing his chores. He's doing her chores. He finally comes to Grandma. Tears in his eyes. He says, Grandma, I shot accidentally. I took my slingshot and I killed your duck and I buried it behind the shed. She goes, I know, Tommy. I saw the whole thing through the kitchen window. And I forgave you. I love you. But I was wondering how long you were going to let your sister hold this over you. We are forgiven and called to live a changed life, to no longer carry the burden of our shame and guilt. Jesus says, no longer do you have to carry that around. I free you from that burden. Jesus came to free us from our shame and our guilt. How many of you know John 3.16 by heart? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, and whoever believes in him will never perish but have what? Eternal life. But how many of you know verse 17 as well by heart? What comes after is equally powerful. John 3.17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus encounters the woman caught in adultery. He was not sent to that moment, that encounter, to condemn her. He was sent to that moment to save her from her sin, from her shame. And he met her in that moment. He offered her grace and forgiveness. And he called her to a changed life. Let's end the way we started this series by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 together. If you can see the screen, uh, let's read it together. Here we go. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is God speaking to St. Paul, but it's God speaking to you and me right here as we think about our shame and our guilt and our sin. God says, my grace is sufficient for you in that brokenness. I love you. I forgive you. It's enough. For my power, God says, is made perfect in that weakness, in that shame, in that brokenness. So when I'm ashamed, where do I turn? I turn to the cross. I turn to the cross of Jesus. And I bring all my shame. And I bring all my guilt. And I bring all my sin. And at the cross of Jesus, I lay my burden down. And out of his unconditional love for you and me, out of his grace, we're free. Our shame is no more. You want to carry that around with you the rest of your life? Or do you want to be set free? The ultimate 
place in the time of Jesus for showing shame and weakness was crucifixion on a cross, execution by hanging and suffocating to death in public. And that's where Jesus went to pay the price for your shame and sin and guilt and mine. That's where God says, my power is made perfect in that weakness. What the world meant as a moment of weakness for Jesus is the ultimate moment of God's power because it's in that moment on the cross Jesus forgives us and sets us free. So when you're ashamed, welcome Jesus to meet you where you're at. And hear his words of forgiveness. And be set free. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of grace. By faith in our Savior Jesus, through the cross and empty tomb, we are set free from our shame, our guilt. Lord, I pray for that one who's still carrying that around. You want to meet them right where they're at and have them lay that burden down at the cross. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit to be changed, to have the power to be set free. We pray these things in Jesus' name and we all said together, amen.